Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. crazy about. It's just music. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I look at one of popular music's most influential genres and give disco its due. And later on, Greg and I will review the new albums from the Dave Matthews Band and Sonic Youth. Support for Sound Opinions is provided by founding sponsor Alltech Lansing and their new Octave Air speaker system, a wireless 80-watt wall of sound for your iPod. Details available at alltechlansing.com. Sound Opinions and Alltech Lansing want you to be the critic this summer. Win an all-expense paid trip to Chicago to attend the Pitchfork Music Festival with an opportunity to meet Jim and Greg. Runners-up will win an in-motion max from Alltech Lansing. Enter to win at soundopinions.org. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. Ladies and gentlemen, Pearl Jam. Big news out of the Pearl Jam camp this week, uh, not only because they debuted a new song on the uh, debut of the Conan O'Brien show, The Tonight Show, Conan taking over for Jay Leno and Johnny Carson et al. Our our close personal friend, Conan. Ever since we were on that show two years ago, uh, things are going up for him. His career has been on the upswing. I would say you're right, Jim. Uh, Pearl Jam debuting that song, but part of a major campaign, uh, Pearl Jam retooling its entire business approach. We've been talking about this in recent years, Pearl Jam being one of those major bands that is no longer affiliated with a major label. What would they do next for their next album? Well, they do have a new album that is finished called Backspacer, supposed to be out in the fall. And Kelly Curtis, the manager of Pearl Jam, in an interview with Billboard magazine earlier this week, basically outlined their business plan. He says that they are not going to be putting out this record with a major label. In fact, they're going to be affiliating with one of the big box retailers, Target. Coinciding with that, Cameron Crowe, their good friend from the Seattle area, shot a series of videos at a Seattle club. One of those videos is going to be used in conjunction with a Target ad, which is shocking news considering the fact that Pearl Jam has for a couple of decades taken a very strong stance against licensing its music to any sort of advertising. And Curtis did add this caveat. He said, just because we're affiliating with Target doesn't mean necessarily that we're going to be boxing out those independent record stores. He says the deal is going to be multifaceted. It will allow a number of different platforms 
for uh, releasing the music. But basically, the big news is that they're going to go the route of Radiohead and uh, Nine Inch Nails and put out a major new album without the help of a major record company. See, I would disagree with you there. They're not going the route of Radiohead and Nine Inch Nails because those bands did not get in bed with a giant national retail chain. Pearl Jam is a big enough corporation on its own that it doesn't have to do something as tawdry as, as you know, <laughs> perform in front of those red bullseye circles. Yeah, you know? well, you know, it, it is disturbing. I'll give you that. But uh, had they done an exclusive with Target, I would have been a lot harsher on them. It appears that Target is going to be only one of many areas that they're going to get this music out into. It remains to be seen what this full business plan is. Right now, they're just revealing the barest details. We'll know more in a few more months. That is Fell in Love with a Boy, one of the hit singles by the uh, young British soul diva Joss Stone. I don't think we've talked about her on the show, but I'm a big Joss Stone fan. Are you really? Uh, the, the idea of, of <laughs> bubblegum, old school R&B or blues yeah. it kind of appeals to me. Fake uh, blues is good. She's, she's got a set of pipes okay. and she's got the right attitude. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you know, the way the music industry has worked for half a century is that these record companies come to artists and give them a lot of money for which the artist is then deeply in debt and the artist makes music, right? Joss Stone is trying to give her record company money to be able <laughs> to break away from it. She has reportedly offered EMI, one of the uh, remaining giant multinational record labels three and a quarter million dollars to let her go she has said she no longer has anything in common with the label quote no working relationship they're not doing anything for her and her career in fact they are holding her back she still has several albums remaining on what uh, would be a 12 million dollar four album deal but she it's worth it more than three million dollars for her just for them to let her go you know I was making fun of her earlier Jim but uh, she did sell 11 million records for this label so it would be a huge loss for EMI if she did leave and uh, following very closely in the footsteps of uh, two other major losses for the label in recent years with Radiohead and Paul McCartney both jumping ship and and basically doing the independent thing. Nobody wants to be on EMI.
He's a Rebel, one of many, many tracks that uh, Phil Spector produced in his career that became huge hit singles. We have been following his six-year-long trial in the shooting death of actress Alana Clarkson out in Los Angeles. Spector is now 69 years old. He was just sentenced to a lengthy prison term in uh, California, a 19-year prison term. Uh, the judge, Larry Fiddler, had no mercy whatsoever on Spector. He was uh, subject to a mandatory 15-year prison sentence because of the second-degree murder charge. The judge added a four-year enhancement for personal use of a gun and also imposed a $26,000 fine. So, therefore, Spector would not be eligible for parole until he turns at least 88 years old. A sad, tragic end to uh, one of the most uh, exalted careers in popular music. listening to Sound Opinions, and uh, you know that song. You know you do. <laughs> and right now, on the movie screen in your head, you're seeing one John Travolta strutting his stuff down the street. Why are we playing Staying Alive by the Bee Gees, Saturday Night Fever? From time to time on Sound Opinions, we like to dig deep into what we call a genre dissection. Look at a, uh, a genre of popular music, give our thoughts about it, do kind of an overview. And I think it's safe to say, Greg, that no genre in the history of modern popular music has been more maligned than disco. Absolutely right, Jim. There was an entire brigade of rock kids in the late 70s sporting t-shirts that said disco sucks on them. <laughs> I mean, we all met those people. Maybe we were those people at one time. Maybe we're still those people. We're going to try to knock down some prejudices here and, and talk about disco as a great art form. If you don't know disco from the disco sucks era, you may know it from Saturday Night Fever, the movie that turned this underground club phenomenon into a huge mainstream hit. All of a sudden, disco started popping up in shopping malls in the middle of Montana and was a major fad for a couple of years. Now, it's still one of the best-selling albums of all time. Yes, a, a huge hit. The movie was a huge hit. Nobody expected it to make a lot of money. It did. The soundtrack made a ton of money. The Bee Gees became superstars overnight with the soundtrack. And then the Studio 54 era, the uh, infamous nightclub in, in the middle of New York City that became a hangout for the stars. You know, people like Andy Warhol and Mick Jagger and Bianca Jagger, you know, hanging out, snorting cocaine in the back rooms and dancing to disco music under the disco lights. So people have these associations about the glamour and the glitz of that era and what it meant and perhaps the, the fact that a lot of this music felt disposable. But let's look at the roots of this music and it'll illustrate that there's a long, rich tradition of this kind of music that was built into disco and how disco flourished to this day, 30 years later. I mean, we were coming up upon the anniversary 
of that infamous night in Chicago. Disco Park. Demolition Night, right? Bunch of disco records got burned by a disc jockey in Chicago. Ended a White Sox doubleheader because a riot broke out on the field in the mi- middle of this disco inferno, a literal disco inferno yeah. on the field. And uh, we're coming up on that anniversary, and it gives us occasion to look at this art form in a little bit more enlightened light, let's say. Think about this term disco. When did this come into vogue? It was first used, according to a number of sources, in a September 1973 article in Rolling Stone magazine, of all places, by Vince Aletti, who was yeah. one of the first writers to really chronicle this genre of music. Was and he, he wrote a great book that charts the history and development of disco day by day, and his, his writing really brings that music to life. Absolutely. The title of the article in Rolling Stone was uh, Discotheque Rock 72 Party. (laughs) And uh, it was a club and loft phenomenon at that stage. There weren't really discotheques as such. They were small kind of loft parties presided over by disc jockeys who were basically playing their record collections for people and figuring out new ways of getting people to dance, segueing tracks together, extending the tracks out, forming the basis for hip-hop music, which was going on in a parallel stream in New York City at the time where disc jockeys were playing these tracks, a lot of them so-called disco tracks, as uh, the platforms for MCs to rap over. So you had these two genres of music sort of working side-by-side in New York City in the early 70s. It was coming out of soul and funk in the 60s and 70s and developed a style of of its own. You you, you think about a singer like Shirley Goodman, who had a huge hit in the 50s out of New Orleans when she was known as Shirley and Lee called Let the Good Times Roll. She resurfaces in 1974 as Shirley and Company and has one of the first disco hits, Shame, Shame, Shame. Mm-hmm. So this music was coming out of the R&B that was occurring in the 50s in a lot of ways. So just listen to the What was happening and what sort of turned it into a genre were a couple of things. That steady 4-4 rock beat, that syncopated bass line that you needed to get people on the dance floor and dancing, and, uh, you know, a basic meter of about 120 beats per minute. If you had those criterion met, you were considered a disco record. It was no longer just R&B and soul or funk. It was now disco. And you can hear the transition in that Philly soul sound of the early 70s. Philadelphia soul music as written, produced, and arranged by Leon Gamble and Kenny Huff. Gamble and Huff, uh, two of the greatest songwriters ever in music history, the successors to that Motown legacy of the 60s. And what they did was they put more bottom in the music. Um, Motown mixed its records very high. They they were very hot. There was a lot of high end in those Motown singles of the 60s. What Philly did 
was bringing a lusher orchestration and more of a bottom end on the music. And that created a platform for disco to form. You can hear it with a group like Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, one of the greatest of the Philly soul groups. Gamblin' Huff writing for them. That was Teddy Pendergrass's first group as a vocalist. And they had a version of a song called Don't Leave Me This Way that served as a bridge between the Philly soul era and the disco era. Don't Leave Me This Way, as performed by Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, was basically a soul song. A year later, a woman by the name of Thelma Houston recording for the Motown label turned it into a disco song. Here, disco starting to become a style. Yeah. Uh, by the mid '70s, the style had been formed, but it hadn't ascended to mass popularity yet. It hadn't become a trend. Saturday Night Fever was still two years off, so you had this very exciting art form taking place and spreading out from New York and getting all over the country. We're going to take a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. And when we return, Greg and I will continue our disco dissection. Plus, we'll review the new albums from the Dave Matthews Band and Sonic Youth.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Danson Greg Cott. And during this episode, we've been exploring disco, the most overlooked and misunderstood genre, I think, in popular music in the last century. Greg, as you explained earlier, you know, the roots of this sound lay in the Philly soul sound. But by the mid-70s, the music was beginning to be established on its own. The scene was still very much underground, however, uh, just like another music scene that was happening on the Lower East Side of New York. The punk and the disco worlds had a lot in common. A lot of the punk musicians would later be the first to recognize that when you had bands like Blondie and the Talking Heads bringing elements of disco in. Why? Because they came from the same place. It was often a gay subculture. Fire Island, the gay community, was a huge hotbed for this. It was the music of outsiders. Right. You know, by the time you get to Saturday Night Fever, it's the music of posers and wannabes and charlatans. <laughs> you know, to have this Australian pop band, the Bee Gees, reinvent themselves as a disco band. Or, you know, Saturday Night Fever, the screenplay, was based on a famous piece of journalism that Nick Cohn had written for New York Magazine. Right. Uh, the problem with the journalism was it was all made up. Mm-hmm. None of it ever happened. That wasn't really where disco was happening. It was happening in gay clubs, and you had stars like Sylvester. This guy, Sylvester James, the first drag queen superstar Mm -hmm. in, in popular culture. He was a child gospel star, moved to San Francisco, tried to make it as a soul singer, tried to make it as a rocker, actually made two rock albums. He didn't fit. He didn't fit anywhere. And it wasn't only because he wore dresses and sang in such a high voice. He was just, he just didn't fit in the culture until he discovered disco and began to strike out on his own. And, you know, you can hear the joy of someone who, who's been shunned by society and never really fit in anywhere, didn't really have an identity in a song like his real breakthrough hit, You Make Me Feel Mighty Real. Mm-hmm. You know, what does he say again and again and again? I feel real. I feel real. I feel real. company initially told him, you got to butch it up. That was a quote. This is a man wearing a dress, right? This towering, statuesque, beautiful woman, except that he's a man. I was like, you you can't tell Sylvester to be anybody but (laughs) Sylvester. And I think that that was an essential joy in the early disco sound. You also hear it in in Gloria Gaynor. This woman, uh, Gloria Fowles, is born in Newark, New Jersey. She doesn't really fit in anywhere. She also came from the church. It's amazing how many gospel singers became disco superstars. Mm -hmm. I Will Survive is one of those songs we've heard a quadrillion times. So much at so many weddings and in so many elevators and in so many parties that it's become a cliche. You Mm -hmm. know, George Carlin famously tore it apart. But if you look at the message of that song about a woman who's been spurned by her lover and and possibly mistreated physically, and it's this defiant cry, I will survive. going to put me down. Mm-hmm. And that became the, the rallying cry for people who didn't fit in anywhere, who didn't have money, who didn't have privilege. Contrast that 
to a couple of years later when Studio 54 would not let you in the door if you didn't have the right clothing and you weren't with the right people and you weren't beautiful. Mm-hmm. That wasn't what disco was about at no. all. It was about everybody come together, let's get sweaty, let's dance together, hopefully let's go home with another misfit like ourselves. The same message as punk in the early days. No doubt about it, Jim. The democracy of the dance floor, Latinos, gays, blacks, all the outcasts of society created the scene and they created their own superstars, people like Sylvester, people like Gloria Gaynor, who wouldn't have stood a chance in the mainstream music world were superstars in this world and, and emerged into the mainstream because of the nurturing they got in these clubs. You know, the only people who were excluded, Greg, were straight white men. And it was straight white men in the late 70s who came up with the Disco Sucks campaign. They were threatened by it. Look at that phrase itself. I mean, that's mm-hmm. homophobia personified. Yeah, I mean, it, they weren't protesting a drum machine. They were protesting, I think, a, a deeper sociological issue that they had with this movement. They were protesting a culture that threatened them. And, and therefore, there was an idea that these people can't possibly make art. And yet, somebody like Donna Summer was making concept albums in the 70s. I think she was one of the true superstars of this movement who transcended disco, was making great records uh, with Giorgio Moroder, and and basically reinvented the sound. Because remember, a lot of these early disco records that we've been playing were forged with uh, live instrumentation, great studio bands, meticulous production, great attention to sonic detail. They were made the same way that Phil Spector made his wall of sound recordings. When you listen to something like Barry White's Love Unlimited Orchestra, Mm -hmm. he's got 50 pieces. Absolutely. There was a lot of love and a lot of attention and a lot of art lavished on on this so-called trend. But I think Summer hit the apex of it uh, with I Feel Love, that that 1977 single. You didn't think I was going to be able to do it, but I'm going to bring Brian Eno into this. Because the story (laughs) goes... I knew you were going to do it. The story goes that in, in the middle of the night, he was making a record with David Bowie in Berlin. And Eno came running into the studio and said to Bowie, I have just heard the sound of the future. And the record he put on was I Feel Love by Donna Summer. Now, you know, Summer, again, had come from gospel found her way over to Europe where she was touring with a version of the uh, hippie musical Hair mm. <laughs> you know? and links up with this producer and songwriter Giorgio Moroda. He was actually part of a team with a guy named Peter Bellote and they crafted this kind of lighthearted electronic backing track as a demo in 74. That was Love to Love You Baby which really became the prototype of I Feel Love. It was the first time you had a backing track entirely constructed of electronic instruments. It was all synthesizer, it was all drum machines, just hadn't been done before, paired with this incredible African-American gospel-trained voice. The story goes that Love to Love You, Baby, Summer actually just uh, improvised the lyrics, which are mostly kind of orgasmic moans, in the studio while lying on her back, you know, Mm. staring up at the microphone. With I Feel Love, they kicked it into even higher 
gear. A German band named Kraftwerk had begun to make all electronic records in the rock realm. What Maroda did was pair it with that four on the floor rhythm you were talking about as essential to disco and turn the former LaDonna Gaines loose. Donna Summer just, uh, this is a song about making love to a machine. You listen to I Feel Love and all electronic dance music of the last 40 years comes from this track. So here it is, I Feel Love by Donna Summer, 1977 on Sound Opinions. I Feel Love from Donna Summer on Sound Opinions. People forget, Jim, that that track uh, was part of a concept album. I mean, yeah. everybody talks about these singles artists in disco. Okay, what about the albums they made? I mean, that was a really ambitious 1977 concept album called I Remember Yesterday, mm-hmm. and that was the future portion yeah, right, right, of the right, record. Right. And it really was the future. As your friend Brian Eno said, you know, I've just heard the future. <laughs> well, you know, and it's also very psychedelic. That song changes. When you just listened on your radio, maybe you're driving in the car, you're listening at home in the kitchen, but when you hear it in the disco setting and it's incredibly loud it is it is a mind-altering experience it yeah. is a drug no it, it is truly a fascinating track and the thing is you can put it on today and it still sounds fresh and still sounds like the future the other great auteurs of the disco era besides donna summer and giorgio Moroder, i think were bernard edwards and nile rogers collectively known as chic Talk about your great disco groups. This was truly a band. Edwards and Rogers came out of the band concept. They had started a rock band in Manhattan 
in the early 70s and got really dastardly looks like, you know, black guys can't play in a rock band. They forged ahead into the disco era and created this concept of, you know, we're going to be a band, we're going to play out live, we're going to play disco music, but it, it doesn't really matter what we're playing because it's just good music. It defies genre classification. And I think they realized all of those ambitions with Good Times, their track from 1979. To my mind, it is the track that ends the disco era in a lot of ways and also opens up the future for disco to flourish in all these other art forms. You talk about your Eno-esque minimalism at its finest. You know, there's, there's just this drizzle of keyboards in it, these really taut string arrangements, you know, very clipped, fitting in with that rhythm guitar that Nile Rodgers is playing. And above all, Bernard Edwards' bass line to end all disco bass lines, as far as I'm concerned. This bass line has been sampled countless, countless times. It is one of the classic bass lines in all of popular music from the last 50 years. And people often do not pay attention to uh, disco lyrics. It's a mistake, I think, when you talk about certain tracks like the Sylvester track or the Gloria Gaynor track that you had played earlier. And I think a good example is Good Times. A lot of people are saying, oh, they're they're singing these kind of frivolous, happy lyrics. Well, disco was about uplift and happiness. But consider the time that this was coming out. People of 2009 will appreciate what was happening in 1979 because America was going through a pretty serious recession. The economics of the inner city were particularly bad. Well, New York City was about to go bankrupt. The famous headline in the New York Daily News, Ford to City, drop dead. Mm -hmm. The city of New York wanted a bailout. So to listen to this track and say, oh, happy times are here again, happy days are here again. Well, in fact, that's exactly what they were referencing. They were drawing on some of these Depression-era songs like Happy Days Are Here Again. So they were directly referencing tough economic times and the kind of music that people listened to when they were at their lowest ebb. What did they need at this particular moment? So Rogers and Edwards understood that impulse, filtered it into this song, a brilliant dance song. The three-minute disco break in the middle of the song, this is about an eight-minute track, I think is one of the most innovative pieces of music that came out of that disco era. Here it is, Sheik's Good Times on Sound Opinions.
That's Good Times by the Mighty Sheik. Absolutely correct, Greg. That, that is a great, great band. They deserve to be hailed as important artists. One of the things that people get hung up on when they look back at disco is they're not thinking about Sheik and Gloria Gaynor and Donna Summer. They're thinking about the Rolling Stones doing Miss You and Barry Manilow doing Copacabana and Anne Margaret and Kiss and Barbara Streisand and Dolly Parton. They all put out disco records. You know, it was like that was what was selling, so everybody put it on. You have to separate that from the actual artistic leaps that the music was making. No doubt about it, Jim. Edwards and Rogers were hailed as geniuses. They were adapted by a number of rock bands, uh, for better or worse. And some of them, you know, worked out really well. They, you know, they worked on David Bowie's Let's Dance, Madonna's Like a Virgin, Duran Duran's Notorious, NXS's Original Sin. These are tracks that took the disco sound into the 80s and sort of reconfigured it into rock music. But you also consider this song in particular, Good Times, was the launching pad for hip-hop. Uh, Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight mm-hmm. was based on this bass line. Curtis Blow's The Breaks was based on this song. Blondie's Rapture, one of the big new wave mm-hmm. hits, was based on this bass line. Queen's Another One Bites the Dust was that based baseline. on this bass line. You could go on and on and on about how this song has continued to live on. So disco, although the genre itself may be dead, the idea of dance music and this sound that we talked about in Donna Summer's I Feel Love and Sheik's Good Times continues to influence the popular music of today. Greg, let's take a quick listen to a roller skating jam named Saturdays by the great De La Soul, one of the many descendants of Chic and Disco. Then in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we'll review the new albums by the Dave Matthews Band and Sonic Youth. Support for Sound Opinions is provided by founding sponsor Alltech Lansing and their new Octave Air speaker system, a wireless 80-watt wall of sound for your iPod. 
Details available at alltechlansing.com. Be a critic like Jim and Greg. When an all-expense-paid trip to Chicago to attend the Pitchfork Music Festival, courtesy of All Tech Lansing and Sound Opinions. Runners-up will win an All Tech Lansing In Motion Max speaker system. Enter at soundopinions.org. Lying in the park on a beautiful day, sunshine in the grass. And my children play sirens passing, fire engine red. Someone's house is burning down on a day like this. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is the Dave Matthews Band with the single Funny the Way It Is from the new studio album Big Whiskey and the Grugrux King. Boy, that's a mouthful, You huh? say that a few times, huh? <laughs> The Gru Grux King is named after uh, the band's late saxophonist. That was his nickname. Uh, his real name was Leroy Moore. He died last August at age 46 from injuries suffered in an all-terrain vehicle accident near his farm in Virginia. And the shadow of Moore hangs over this album. But a little background on Matthews first. Uh, singer born in South Africa in 67, traveled all over the world ended up in Charlottesville, Virginia in 1990 and started playing in the local music scene where he met Leroy Moore and uh, the future members of the Dave Matthews Band, Boyd Tinsley, Carter Beaufort, and bassist Stefan Lazard. You know, interesting. I think in the last 20 years, we've had very few acts ascend from the club level to the stadium level. Dave Matthews Band is an exception. One of the few bands that has emerged in the last couple of decades that now f- routinely fills stadiums. Uh, I, I have a hard time believing this figure, but mm-hmm. I keep seeing it reprinted. Grosses of half a billion dollars in ticket sales in the last decade. Yeah, it's pretty phenomenal. They're uh, on a 40 to $50 million a year clip just from touring alone. In addition to that, they've sold 31 million albums in the last 16 years. So a major, major band. Uh, it's been a, a several years since their last studio album. Given the fact that uh, Moore died, the band nearly broke up before making this album, but they regrouped, went into the studio with Rob Cavallo, who's worked previously with Green Day and My Chemical Romance, and now let's see what they did. The new Dave Matthews album is called Big Whiskey and the Grugrux King. Let's play a track from it. It's called Alligator Pie on Sound Opinions.
Alligator Pie by the Dave Matthews Band from the seventh studio album, Big Whiskey and the Grux King. Greg, all the accounts I've read of the making of this album, it almost didn't happen. Uh, the Matthews Band has been pulling apart. It's been more a corporate enterprise than an actual artistic unit. This was even before Moore's death. There was some debate whether it would even continue, but then everybody said, let's give it one more go. They retired to this rural house in uh, Virginia, began to record. Moore died early in the sessions, and then the album continued in several other locales without him. I am going to point out that you and I have reviewed Matthews many times Mm. in concert, and we've written about every album. I will maintain that seeing that band live is a tough call about whether that's worse torture or maybe waterboarding, okay? (laughs) You know, the number of times that Moore and Tinsley would go off on those 20 to (laughs) 25-minute jammy solos that had such disdain for the audience that they would literally break into Mary Had a Little Lamb in the middle of them. I've always preferred the studio albums where they're forced to be more concise and to focus on Matthew's lazy but catchy melodies. You know, that rhythm drives me crazy, that part funk, part jazz, part rock, slow chuglin shuffle. You know, I mean, I hate that rhythm. But fine, if that's your thing and his his melodies get you, uh, don't listen too hard to the lyrics because, you know, he's either making sex jokes that, that are best left in the frat house or he's, uh, you know, deeply philosophizing. We skated right over that single, Funny the Way It Is, which is like him sitting there reading one coffee cup slogan after another. Don't turn to this guy for wisdom. Don't turn to him for anything original. If you want your, you know, shuffling, chuglin' music, fine. It's, you know, on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale. Look, at a half a billion tickets sold, he doesn't need your money. But it's a, it's, it's a burn it record at best. Well, I think uh, Matthews, uh, for once, actually made a record that I enjoy hearing. I think previously of all his studio records, the only record that I actually endorsed was the one that they didn't release, uh, those uh, infamous Steve Lillywhite sessions from the early part of the decade, which was actually some pretty good music. And I think on that record, they came closest to getting a sound that I think, to my mind, is actually somewhat listenable. When all five of them are on the same page, they can produce some really cool moments. The solos, I agree with you. I think, I think uh, the saxophone and violin solos got too much. But the tauter song arranging that you talked about in the last 10 years, uh, they went into the studio with people like Glenn Ballard, you know, uh, these song pros, Mark Batson. That sort of sucked some of the juice out of that interplay. And I think what Cavallo did, their new producer, the guy who's worked with Green Day and My Chemical Romance, is beefed up the bottom in a way that you can hear that rhythm section with more vitality and more robustness than ever before. And I think that gives them a rock drive. I actually kind of like this record, particularly the second half. There's a string of songs where Matthews rocks pretty hard, and I thought I'd never say that about a Dave Matthews record. So I say, if there's one Dave Matthews studio record to own, I'd say this is it. So you're telling people to buy it? Yes. Wow. That's a song called Poison Arrow by Sonic Youth from their new album, The Eternal, 
Uh, not for nothing does it have that title, Greg. The band has now been running for three decades, and this is the 16th studio album of its long career. A career that I will note has been both uh, dramatically underrated at some points early on when they were reinventing what could be done with guitars in rock and roll in the post-punk universe, and ridiculously overrated. None other than the uh, dean of American rock critics, Robert Criscow, declared on the last album, Sonic Youth are the best band in the universe. I think somewhere in between lies the truth, but let's listen to this disc before we get into our opinions. This This is a new lineup of Sonic Youth. Jim O'Rourke left two albums ago, the last one they made as the quartet that they've been for most of their career. This one brings on Mark Eibold, used to be in Pavement playing bass, leaving Kim Gordon, Thurston Moore, and Lee Ronaldo on the three guitars. Also, they have a new label. After a decade and a half or so on Geffen Records, famously they were the band that brought Nirvana to Geffen at the height of the alternative movement, they've gone back to the indie ranks. This one's on Matador Records. They started on Homestead early in their career, which was the predecessor to Matador. So this brings them back, and Thurston Moore has said it has given them a, quote, newfound freedom. What are they giving us? This is a song called Sacred Trickster, which opens the record as kind of a manifesto about their brand of noise rock. Sonic Youth from The Eternal on Sound Opinions. Sacred Trickster from the new Sonic Youth record, The Eternal. Jim, I think when this band emerged uh, in New York City in the 80s, they uh, rode that wave. They were uh, basically making an urban brand of surf music. It's the only way to describe it. And I think, for for lack of a better term, it's the New York City sound. The Velvets had it. The Feelys had it. Sonic Youth had it. You can hear it in some of the Strokes records in, in recent years. Another analogy might be a roller coaster ride. You feel like you're in this car 
You're not quite sure where it's going to go. It speeds up, it slows down, and you're just riding it just for the sheer thrill of it. Yeah. Uh, when they're at their absolute best, that groove is paramount. And I think this is above all a groove album. On the rather ripped record from 2006, uh, it was more about melody. This one's about that groove. This is about returning to that sound that put them on the map in the 80s. There's less of that avant-garde texture in this music, uh, less of those digressions that sometimes some people thought, well, what, what are they doing for 15 minutes here banging on their instruments like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like their alarm clocks or something or, or gongs? Now it's just about that groove, and it's about those linear songs. The triple guitar lineup, Eyebold on bass, Kim Gordon now back on guitar, Thurston Moore, Lee Ronaldo, so three guitar players in the band, all strumming away at the same time, and it's just a great sound. They're not breaking any new ground here, but when they do it, they do it as well as anybody ever has, and it's a buy-it record for me all the way. I agree. Absolutely a buy-it record, Greg, and I never thought I would say that about Sonic Youth again. Now, I grew up with this band, one of the first groups I ever saw perform live early in their career, and I think they had an extraordinary run from 85 through 90, with Bad Moon Rising at the beginning, Daydream Nation in the middle, Goo, first album for Geffen at the end, and then I haven't liked anything they've done in 17 years. I don't think that they've been concise or focused or really paying attention to the quality of the songwriting. You know, it's like, look, once you've seen them stick the screwdriver in the neck once, you know, you don't need to see it again. This time, whatever inspired it, they have come roaring back with a set of great songs. Nothing new. It doesn't matter. The songs hold up. I love them. Best Sonic Youth album, absolutely, in 17 years. A double buy it. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to examine the life and career of Towns Van Zant, one of the great songwriters of all time. And if you don't believe us, believe Steve Earle, who's going to be our guest in the studio, playing some of Towns' songs and talking about the influence of his mentor. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say. Sound Opinions was produced by our ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. And our executive producer and fearless leader is Tori Southside Malatia, who, I have on good authority, has several leisure suits of Kiana in his closet. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic, so give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. New Messages. Hi, this is uh, John from New York, and I just finished listening to your uh, last show on the web uh, where you reviewed Wilco and um, made a comparison of Jeff Tweedy and Wilco to Bob Dylan, and uh, you've compared them to Neil Young in the past. And I, while I'm a big fan of Wilco, I think that's going a bit too far. I don't think you can say in Wilco's career that uh, you know they've had the artistic or cultural impact that artists like Neil Young and Bob Dylan have had. I would argue that Wilco and Jeff Tweedy have been more consistent. They haven't had the clunkers that uh, Neil and Bob do on occasion, but you know they haven't hit the heights that they have, nor had the impact of songs like Blowing in the Wind or Tonight's the Night, for example, or Ohio by Neil Young. So um, sorry to ramble, but um, I just want to make that point. Thanks a lot. Enjoy your show a lot, and um, keep up the good work. Bye. Oh, damn.
my name is Jeremy from Long Beach, California, and I just got done listening to your guys' review of Eminem's new album. And I've been a huge Eminem fan um, for a while now, and I've you know been defending him to all my friends. And I have to say, you guys hit the, the nail right on the head with this last you know this last record. It's really tired. His his rhymes used to be really good, and his flow was really good in the way you put words together. And now it's just like he'll put any two words that rhyme together, and they don't even have to, to make sense or be about a coherent subject. Now I need something in my stomach because I haven't ate. Maybe I'll grab a plate of nachos and I'll have a steak. And you think that what all I have at stake? Look at my daughter's face. Mommy, something is wrong with that, I think. He's acting weird again. He's really beginning to scare me. Won't shave his beard again. And he pretends he doesn't hear me. And all he does is eat Doritos and Cheetos. And he just fell asleep in his car eating three musketeers in the rear seat. Sometimes I feel so alone. And it's just so disappointing. Uh, and I thought you guys did a great job of calling that out. Thanks a lot. Hello, Jim and Greg. This is Eli from Grand Rapids, Michigan. I'm calling in response to a caller from last week. I think his name was Jason. Um, he basically called to bash on hip-hop. He used words like sad, unoriginal, inorganic to describe it. And, you know, I couldn't disagree more with all of those words, but I guess everybody is entitled to their own opinion. However, I do want to take up concern with his bashing on you guys for being middle-aged white men sitting around listening to rap and how sad that was. And I just think that's ridiculous. I think that's basically trying to put people in a nice, neat little box, and it's unacceptable. Thanks a lot, guys. Keep up the good work. With a little bit of gold in a page. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.